we're going to finish up these, uh, this little set of books. And in the, in the middle, we stuck in Zephaniah to just get an Old Testament perspective on the day of the Lord. And so we're going to see in 2 Thessalonians uh, a lot of overlap in the content with 1 Thessalonians. Now, uh, in this first part of the sermon, just to give you a heads up, because this is the first one, I'm going to be covering a little bit more of the background here, uh, what's going on, why there was a second letter, the time that passed, and those kinds of things. So we want to we lay this foundation so we understand the book as best we can in its original context and what Paul was intending for these Thessalonian believers to know. So again, there is a lot of overlap between 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. The second letter addresses the day of the Lord as he addressed in the first one, but he does it with more intention. And in the second letter, there's much more of a, if we can say like a sober tone. You recall as we walked through 1st Thessalonians, it was just like oozing with joy and, and this love and this desire to see one another and I long to be with you all is what Paul said to them on more than one occasion. And his desire was that their love and their, their hope, their faith, all of these things would increase and abound more and more. And in the second letter, it's almost like, hey, these issues are clearly not settled among you, so I need to address this issue of the day of the Lord and all that goes with it. So we begin, I'll go ahead and read. I'm going to separate the reading into verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. So let's read the first two verses. Sorry for my sound guy. Uh, Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right here, we get this greeting, Paul, Sylvanus, Timothy. In uh, Paul's journeys, he was with these brothers for an extended period of time in Corinth. So they were together and they wrote, Paul wrote the first letter. Obviously, Paul is one, the one behind these things. And he's the one sort of owning its message. And he uses the singular I. Uh, on various occasions in these letters. So we understand while uh, Sylvanus and Timothy are sort of co-signing, Paul is really the, the, the motivation behind these letters. So they were together in Corinth, and they wanted to correspond once again with these Thessalonian believers concerning the day of the Lord. Now, uh, some commentators believe that as much as a year had passed between the two letters, but in my study, it seems like it's more likely a few months. So maybe a few months have passed. And in, in the relationship between, like geographically, Corinth and Thessalonica, there was a lot of commercial uh, activity that was going on. And so it would not have been very difficult for Paul to receive word or send word, to get reports, to know not in real time, but as best you can without Facebook or something, uh, know what's going on in Thessalonica. And we know from the first letter that their example was spreading throughout all the known world. So it would have made many opportunities, their connections would have made many opportunities for reports to become available. 
The need for a second letter, as we've said, arose from some extreme ideas about what the day of the Lord was. And these errors became more prominent in Thessalonica. You may recall from 1 Thessalonians that some people had apparently quit going to work as they awaited the return of the Lord Jesus. I hope I'm reminding you of these things, but you remember what was happening, and he addresses it again in more detail here. People were, hey, Jesus is coming back soon, so I don't need to worry about going to work. It's, it's that imminent. He's coming back soon, so I'm just going to get ready. I'm going to attend to my own matters here. I'm going to hunker down, and when he comes, I'm good to go. And Paul corrects them, saying, look, look, the fact that he's coming again doesn't mean that you avoid all your responsibilities because, in fact, God has given you a mission through your work, through your family, through your public activity. So some people had done this. And that idea is much more detailed and direct as he talks about it in this letter. Also, the teaching uh, uh, became more prominent that the day of the Lord had already come. So there was a pocket of people not only saying he's coming soon, so we're quitting. There's another uh, pocket of people that were starting to teach that Jesus had already come. And so Paul wrote this letter to address that error along with the other error and the effect that they were having on this local church. In addition, as you know from 1 Thessalonians and as we'll see again, the church is undergoing severe persecutions, possibly more severe than any other of the Pauline churches. And this is a cause for concern that needed more instruction and more encouragement, but it also gives Paul a reason to boast about them in the other churches. You'll hear in just a moment. He instructs them in chapter 2 that they should not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed about these errant teachings. Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And then in chapter 3, he writes to them saying, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And so we've entitled our series, Unshaken, Hearts Directed Toward the Love of God. This letter goes on to address this local church in a couple of different ways. We see right here in these verses. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, he refers to the security of the church here. The security of the church. These are not formalities for Paul, but intentional reminders of the essential Christian truth that God in Christ is uh, bringing these people into himself, unto himself. And this is what Jesus prayed. John 17, 21 that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, that's a phenomenal idea. It goes back to the union we talked about last week, how we are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 23, Paul is addressing the, the Corinthians and, and showing them, you don't, you don't belong to yourself. He says, you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. 
It's this idea of unity. This is the end to which Jesus prayed. It's the end to which he labored. It's the end to which he gave his life. And this union with Christ in God cannot be taken away. He has brought you in. He will not let you go. He will not abandon you. Church, because of the redemption wrought in the gospel of Christ, we are secure in God. Forever united to him, as we used to say when I was growing up, like white on rice. Y'all remember that. We just came back from vacation, and, and you know, as, as parents with a young child, uh, it can be tough. Y'all forgive me for my vacation illustrations today. So we were on vacation all week. I'm going to talk about it, all right? I'm not trying to rub it in, but I'm going to talk about it. So vacationing with a young child, unfortunately for most moms, it is the case, and probably an occasional dad, this is the case, but... For all week, the whole week, my little one is essentially attached to my wife. So they're like, you can't get her off of my wife. And it is exhausting. So y'all make my wife feel good about her vacation this week, all right? She worked hard. She worked hard. It is like that. We are attached. We can't be separated from God, we are in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not going to leave you. He didn't leave them. He won't let us leave him. So we abide in him. So there's the security of the church, but then he also mentions what we could call the supply of the church. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, God in Christ avails to you, church, the endless supply of his grace and peace. Now, you know grace. We're going to talk about grace a lot today. We've sung of grace. You know grace pretty well. You know the effects of grace. You know the supply of grace. It's sustaining you right now. God's grace is letting you breathe. And as a believer, God's grace is sustaining your faith. Grace is that important to your life and your Christian existence. But do you know the peace of God in that same way? The circumstances of our lives call for the peace of God. Paul prays it. I can pray it. You can pray it. And God most assuredly provides it. The Father and the Son, right here, are addressed together as divine equals. Twice you note, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 2, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebert notes here how important the doctrine of the Trinity is to the Christian faith. Paul, an unequivocal monotheist, that is one God, he believes in one God, puts Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, on the level of God, attributing to him all the Godhood of the Father. Explicitly Christian. 
He's teaching things in his salutation here, his address. He is affirming doctrines essential to the Christian faith. We see this. Now we'll move forward and read verses 3 and 4. Then we'll pray together. Hear the word of the Lord. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now let's pray God's favor on our time. Father, we are grateful to be able to open up your word and, and Father, recognizing our own infirmities and, and shortcomings, um, even just the use of the English language and trying to communicate your truth. Father, we know we are fully dependent on you. So help us understand your word. Help us to know you through your son. Send the spirit to convict our hearts and enlighten our hearts and our minds to the beautiful truths we have here. Strengthen your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So these passages from verses really uh, uh, three all the way through the end of the first chapter, verse 12, it's about comfort. It's about comfort. So maybe we could entitle the sermon this week and next week. It's going to be two-parter. This week and next week, we just call it the comfort of God. The comfort of God. Now, it's not difficult to understand why this letter would be important for us. Have you been around the past few years? You don't have to go back 21 years to today to find some evidence that the world is critically sick and broken and in need of redemption. The circumstances of our lives have us longing, here and now, have us longing just a little bit more than we used to. Maybe for some of us, a lot more than we used to. Longing for the end of all things, for the return of Christ. And now, as much as any other time, we must not be shaken by the things swirling around us. This is what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs now. To be honest with you, look, we, we, we look around the world, we look around our country, we look around our communities, and the local church, in many cases, in most cases has been weakened, shaken. I don't want to preach to you about all the reasons why. I'm hoping that the Spirit will help you. But we must, local church, Cedarview Baptist Church, we must be singularly fixated on Christ as we look to the sky. We must live in light of that day where he's going to crack the sky. Every eye will see him. So let's be informed. Let's live ready. Let's be found faithful, steadfast. Let's be found unshaken. So I'll give you the theme 
for today and for next week. God brings essential comfort in uncertain times. God brings essential comfort in uncertain times. And I want to give you a heads up for this week and next week. Well, let's let that soak in a moment. God brings essential comfort in uncertain times. There's an air conditioner. Sometimes the air conditioner is my best friend because y'all are so quiet. I like the air conditioner because it's like I can hear something at least, not just the sound of my own voice. God brings essential comfort in uncertain times. Two ways we experience that comfort. So one this week and one next week. First, we experience that comfort by the recognition and thankful celebration of growth. We experience that comfort by the recognition and thankful celebration of growth. Verses 3 and 4. And then secondly, which we'll cover next week, we experience that comfort by the reminder and hope-filled expectation of glory. We experience that comfort by the reminder and hope-filled expectation of of glory. So for today, we experience that comfort by the recognition and thankful celebration of growth. Verses 3 and 4. And he unfolds this with particular emphasis on thankfulness. We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So there's three ways he breaks down this uh, thankfulness here, this thankful uh, celebration. First off, thankfulness to God is an obligation. Somebody just cringed a little bit. Oh, thankfulness is, is a duty? Oh, but man, you just talked a lot about grace. Now you're telling me there's something I've got to do? We have, we have some sort of aversion to the fact that this is a Christian duty to thank God. Think about the Psalms and the way the writers of the Psalms are like, it's not like, hey, oh, if you feel like giving thanks to God, then, you know, when you're ready, kind of do it, Okay. No, that's not what they say. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? Steadfast love endures forever. He is good. He saved you, right? All these things. Give thanks to the Lord. It's an obligation. Now, it's not a duty in the sense of, or an obligation, in the sense of joyless thanksgiving. I've told you guys before, but my father was like, like a stickler for writing thank you notes. And I rebelled against that. I rebelled against that. And so I'm just not really good at it. It's not my natural response. Sometimes I have done it. Sometimes I've been obligated in some cases by my father to do it. But you know, when I would write those thank you notes, I did it begrudgingly. Well, it's just because my dad is making me do this, right? That's not how we operate as Christians. It's not like, oh, well, i got to give thanks because God told me to. And no, no. A Christian recognizes that God deserves 
every bit of things. He's tying our thanksgiving to the God of immeasurable grace and peace. So we don't give thanks only because we feel like it or only when we discover or rediscover something to be thankful for. We give thanks because also it is obligatory in the life of the Christian. It is a prescribed method of both worshiping God and resetting our own hearts. You remember from 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, you know these verses Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because this is the, do you know it? Will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Giving thanks is God's will for you. So I will ask you, what are your circumstances? review it right now. I know several of you are going through various kinds of things right now. What are your circumstances? You know what I can tell you today is your duty and obligation. It's to give thanks to God in the midst of those circumstances. Give thanks in them. So with that attitude, it becomes really easy to give thanks to God for the growth that he brings in and through the saints of the Lord Jesus, which is what he's doing right here. Sometimes it, it feels, it's not the reality, but sometimes it feels like there's very little good news. And you have to sort of sift through the hard and heavy things to find some grounds for thanksgiving, but I, I promise you it's there. And it's not that difficult if you look, if you take your eyes off the circumstances, you can give thanks to God well. It is an obligation. Thankfulness is an obligation, but also thankfulness to God has an explanation. Thankfulness to God has an explanation. And we begin to see right here the residue of what Paul is commending them and instructing them in his first letter. You know, we went on vacation. I have a little garden now, making my first attempt. We're making our first attempt at a garden. Went on vacation, and I fully expected to come back from vacation to see fruit, to see produce. And in fact, sure enough, the handful of tomatoes, vine-ripened tomatoes, they're small, but they're there. You know, we see in these verses, fruit. We see produce. There's a, a popular triad for Paul of faith, love, and hope that bore out in the life of these believers in Thessalonica. So Paul commended them for these in our first letter. And then he instructed that they abound in these, and now he looks upon the fruit God bore and gives thanks to God. Do you all have those people in your life that do that well? Because somehow we are blind to see the produce, the fruit of what God does in us. And so when you're around the saints, you ought to. If you're not getting this, then we got to do something. 
But if you're around the saints enough, then you start to hear from other people, hey, I see how God is bearing that fruit in your life. I see how God is changing you. I know you don't get up and look in the mirror and see, oh, I look a little more like Jesus today. No. Some days it's like, man, I'm going the wrong direction. <laughs> but those people around you, they're the ones that are going to be able to say, hey, I know you can't see it well. Here's what I see. God's grace in your life. This fruit being born. And he mentions here, as I said, this triad, faith, love, and hope. Faith. It's not just that they grew, but they abounded in faith. It's the sense of over-increase. As Hebrew says, super growth. No triple 13. They got divine fertilizer of God's grace sprinkled on them. But isn't that what God does? In critical times, his grace increases our faith. And when we humbly say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, does he ever disappoint? Now, I'll admit his, his grace toward you in increasing your faith, sometimes it may come to you like a hearty loaf of that bread of life, but sometimes it trickles down like crumbs from the table. But rest assured, God does not set out to crush your faith. Only increase it and make it abound. So Stevens writes here, Your faith buds and branches forth in fresh beauty and vigor. And this happens even when the weather is at its worst. Faith, love, uniquely expressed here. He says, now get this sentence. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. What a statement. This accounts for each individual's love for each and every other individual. And this is, this is kind of like an ideal in the local church, isn't it, folks? It's, it's easy to increase in love for the people that you want to love. But how about the people that aren't so easy for you to love? If you want the evidence of God's grace upon a local church, it's a rich and, and balanced display of love. So Stevens argues, he says, with every individual member, a radiating center of love that extends itself to each and all throughout the church. If we want to stick with the growth metaphor here, if faith is the internal organic growth, here love diffuses in a flow outward, irrigating the whole land. You remember, without love... You're nothing. You're just noise. You're just words. He commends them for their love, their increasing love, and then hope. And you may look through the passage and go, well, he doesn't say hope here, Matt. Where are you getting that? Well, hope is not mentioned here explicitly, but his friends are steadfastness, 
endurance, perseverance? Do you realize that those only operate if there is a common hope and into which the local church labors? So we see they are working towards something together. And Hebert, y'all know I love Hebert. Uh, Hebert, he suggests that the fact that hope is not mentioned here may be intentional on Paul's part because he doesn't want there to be any confusion about these teachings that were creeping into the church. Do you see how a teaching that says Christ has already come, do you see how that damages the common hope? You can't have a common hope if some people are over here like, well, Jesus has already come. So he's got to correct this in order to restore in them the kind of hope that he desires to see, that he knows God desires to see. Their common hope, their shared hope was under attack. Nevertheless, he can commend perseverance here. He can commend their steadfastness, their endurance. Faith, love, and hope These are the explanation of his thankfulness to God. Thirdly, third way. Thankfulness to God produces celebration. You find that in our main point. But I want to emphasize that here. Thankfulness to God produces celebration. You notice interesting language in verse 4. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Boast. Literally, this is, we speak proudly of you. You know, one of the richest statements that can come from a parent's mouth is the statement, I'm proud of you. Paul does just that for these believers. Some commentators think that the Thessalonians didn't want the praise that Paul gave them in the first letter. So like, ah, you didn't need to say all that, Paul. Don't talk about us. We're nothing special. And so Paul right here, according to uh, one commentator, he says, he says, so Paul counteracts their self-deprecation. We do that, don't we? Somebody you want to say positive things about, give sort of a good review, a public thanksgiving for these people's work. And they say, ah, don't mention me. And then we're like, no, I'm going to mention you anyway. Stop acting like God doesn't deserve like all the praise because of what you're doing. So let's talk about it. His boasting is justified in his own mind, it seems, and it's consistent with the understanding of God's grace. God graciously worked these things in them, and he is not esteeming them in some sort of sinful way, a way that steals glory from God. Rather, he exalts God by boasting in the work that he did in them. So let me ask you a tough question, and... We're coming to a close, actually, believe it or not. Let me ask you a tough question. 
Are you proud of your local church? Are you proud of your local church? Do you speak proudly of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Not because of how awesome they are, but because of God's gracious work in them. Are you proud of those people around you now? Are you proud to call them brother and sister? I don't know that you're ever going to value the local church in the New Testament kind of way if you can't get to that point where you're saying, hey, look, I'm not ignoring all the problems that these folks have, okay? I'm not ignoring all the problems that I have, but I am proud of these people. I've met a lot of folks in my Christian life who love and are proud of the church only in an ideal sense. Follow me here. They're proud of what they want the church to become, not what the church is. I've even seen a lot of pastors who pastor the church that they want rather than the church that is. So as long as the church seems to be meeting a certain set of ideals, then I'll boast about it. But the question is, how about the real church? Not just the ideal church, but the real church. Can we, can we be proud in a God-glorifying type of way about a bunch of broken folks being made whole? I think we can, can't we? Can't we be proud of the fact that immature Christians, by God's grace, are becoming more mature? Can't we be proud of the fact that people who've been through difficult circumstances and still strive to love one another well, can't we be proud of that? Can't we be proud that the next generation is learning the faith Can we boast in the fact that through all the challenges, we are becoming the church that Christ is building? I couldn't always say this, and I'm just being dead honest with you. I couldn't always say this because I was so focused on the ideal, too focused, and not the real. But here we are, church. I'm proud of you. And I give thanks to God for the grace that's at work in you. You can rest assured, and I'm sure you can join me in this, we recognize that there's a lot of work to do. We recognize that there's a long way to go. But I hope you can join me in saying that you are my boast. Paul gives us this model here. The grace of God at work in you, and we ought to be able to boast about that. We're all at different points. We're all growing and learning. 
We're all on these different sort of pathways of sanctification. We don't all look the same on those pathways, but we give thanks to God for the work that he does in us. I think there's a, there's a measure of comfort that Paul brings through this recognition and thankful celebration of growth in this local church. Things were not ideal. Paul knew that. And he gave thanks to God for them. Let's give thanks to God for one another. Now, the grace of God transforming, sanctifying, only comes, as we read at the beginning, through the Lord Jesus Christ. He was given as the conduit, the avenue of all of God's grace, grace upon grace, to be, to be bestowed upon those who believe that wonderful, matchless grace of Jesus, we must recognize that maybe it hasn't quite reached you yet. And all that's left is that repentance and faith. All that's left is that surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, publicly identifying with him through baptism, and then faithfully participating in and through the local church to make his name known around the world. I just summarized the very essence, the very reason, the very purpose of your existence, to know God, to make him known in the world, make his gospel known, exalting Jesus. If that's you today, repent and believe for your salvation. And then, believer, there are various ways you may respond to the word this morning, repenting, Seeking that kind of love, increasing. Maybe you just fall on your face today and say, God, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe it has something to do with hope. But this morning, if nothing else, I hope you can join me in recognizing, celebrating, thankfully, the grace of God that has brought about the fruit of our salvation among one another this morning. Let's celebrate that. Pray with me. Father God, we do rejoice. We rejoice in these words of, of Paul as well as Sylvanus, Timothy, that, Father, 